The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. How was everybody's Christmas? Survived? That should really be the bar. How was your Christmas? I survived. Well, as we are in this last Sunday of 2019, and we begin a new decade, I thought maybe we could begin a conversation about contemplation, which could be meaningful. Some of us maybe are already practicing it. Maybe it's new to some of us. But I thought maybe we could begin with a primer this morning. How does that sound? So why don't we do this? Um, Turn to a neighbor, and when you think of contemplation, what comes to mind? There's no wrong answers. Uh, I don't know is a very good answer, but I'll give you a couple minutes, all right? Turn to a neighbor. All right. How many of us kind of understand, but it's like a little tricky to give language to? A little bit, some of us. So for this morning, um, there's many ways to define it, but this is how I like to define it. Contemplation as noticing deeply with curiosity. Or another way to do it, the adverse of it, which I find helpful, is to notice deeply without judgment. That helps me because I'm very judgy, especially with my own life. So this is how I practice it. Uh, You can try it on. If it fits, great. If not, you can try something else. So I practice contemplation. I go through the day, and I just welcome everything that comes to me, good or bad. I welcome it. And then I notice what comes up, notice what's happening. Then I practice some curiosity, go, huh, hmm, interesting. Then I'll notice again, and then I'll ask, what does it mean? Like, what does this mean that's happening to me? So let me give you an example. I was at a contemplative retreat recently, and the goal of the retreat was to get my faith and my spirituality out of my head and into my body. So most negative faith and spirituality comes through our head. In the last 500 years, we've leaned so much to the cognitive, which I love because I'm always in my head, like I'm way too much in my head. And so this contemplative retreat was to try to get me from my head in my body. So how we do that is through ritual. 
Because when you engage in a ritual, your body experiences something in a different way. Does that make sense? So through the week, um, everyone had to volunteer for these rituals, um, and I didn't. Then on the last day, they're like, all right, whoever hasn't volunteered, I was like, okay, fine. So there's four of us. In our ritual, we were going to take these carafes of water, and we would dramatically walk down the middle of the aisle. There's this basin of water at the end, and then we were going to hold these carafes of water over our head and slowly pour it into this big basin. It was supposed to represent the baptismal waters of life. And so we did like a couple practice sessions. And then so we were sitting in silence with about 50 men sitting in a circle. And then our cue came and the four of us very dramatically got up out of our seats simultaneously. We walked with our crafts down the middle of the aisle. We walked around this basin, we held our carafes over our heads, and then we slowly poured. And it was really powerful. And as we were pouring, we were slowly dropping the crafts lower and lower. And as my craft reached eye level, I realized I had forgot to fill my carafe. So there's these four, three streams of water and just my empty craft, just slowly. <laughs> As I was dramatically walking back to my seat, I went through the full spectrum of emotions of embarrassment. Started getting flushed in the face, started getting angry myself, went to shame. Ah, oh, what's wrong with you? Why did you fill your craft, right? And then by the time I got to my seat, because I was at a contemplative retreat, I was like, okay, let me practice some contemplation. So let me just welcome this experience that just happened, right? And then notice, okay, forgot to fill my water. What did I feel? Huh, why did I feel that? Hmm, I went straight to shame. Then I noticed it again. And then I asked, I just sat with it. And I asked, hmm, what does this mean? And it took me a second. And then it dawned on me. I was like, oh, this carafe is actually a symbol of how I showed up to this retreat. I was empty. I had nothing to pour out anymore. And when that dawned on me, I started laughing. But that moment had such deep meaning that somehow life itself was mirroring to me what I was feeling. Does that make sense? This is what Rilke says. He says, be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Isn't that beautiful? And so contemplation, you can do this with music, you can do it with poetry, you can do it with art, you can do it with film, you can do it with nature. You can do it with scripture, you can do it with prayer, you can do confession, Eucharist, silence. You can do it with your life, with relationships, 
with successes and failures. So the mystics say after 30, success has very little to teach you. All your lessons are in your shadows and your failures. Go mine them. And so I thought this morning as we approach a new decade, what would it look like for us to notice our lives more deeply, to notice what God's doing in and among us? And so we're going to be in Matthew 8 this morning. It's just a few short verses. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to read each verse slowly and then just contemplate it, welcome it. Notice what comes up. Ask, hmm, like what, what does this mean? Okay, you want to try it? All right. So Matthew 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw the great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Hmm. What do we think that means? Now, when Jesus saw the great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So in the Gospels, 15 times, Jesus talks about going to the other side. It says, when the evening came, Jesus said, let us go to the other side. He said, when they left him, he crossed to the other side. When they found him, he was on the other side. And it's as if Jesus knew that for all of humanity, we'd spend most of our time demonizing, scapegoating, and throwing people to the other side. That we'd create these gaps that are so big, these chasms, that even today seem uncrossable. We've got left, right, conservative, progressive, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, and we just keep throwing people to the other side. So maybe we can ask this question this morning. Who's on your side? So maybe we just had Christmas dinner. Just picture that table. Who's on your side politically? Who's on your side socially? Who's on your side artistically? Right? You've got that one family member, you're like, they're with me, my side. Right? So picture that whole table, okay? This is what Anthony DeMello says. He says, I leave you free to be yourself, to think your thoughts, indulge your tastes, follow your inclinations, behave in the ways that you decide are to your liking. And then you will notice something else. The person automatically ceases to be as special and important to you. He or she becomes important in the way a sunset or a symphony is lovely in itself. The way a tree is as special in itself, not for the fruit or the shade it can offer you. Your beloved will then not belong to you, but to everyone or to no one, like the sunrise and the tree. Test it by saying those words again. I leave you free to be yourself. And in saying those words, you have set yourself free. 
you are now ready to love. Okay, so we know who's on our side. We got it, right? Now, who's on the other side? Who's on the other side politically? We've got an election next year. Who's on the other side socially? Like bros, brosafinos? Who's on the other side spiritually? Like fundamentalists? Who's on the other side artistically? Like Nickelback? So I was at this contemplative uh, retreat. And what was really beautiful, it was about 50 men, and I was on the younger side of things. Most of the men were aged 50 through 80. And these are American men in their 50 through, 50s through 80s talking about their failures, being vulnerable, and talking about their emotions. That could change the world, seriously. And so my time with them was just really meaningful and beautiful. And so the week was teaching and then a practice and then a ritual. That was kind of the rhythm. And then during the first teaching session, I learned about one of my own prejudices. So the first teacher got up, and the moment he walked up, I put him in a box. So this is my prejudice, okay, my limitation. But he walked up, and he looked like he had just walked off the set of Duck Dynasty. Okay. Again, my prejudice, my, and sure, it's a great show. He had a camel hat on, camel shirt. It said, play with Jesus. And I was like, oh, boy, here we go, right? Then he starts talking, and he has, like, the thickest Texas, like, country drawl. And he's like, hey, y'all, it's so good to be here. I came 20 years ago. And it changed my life. And my, subconsciously, my eyes are rolling in the back of my head. Again, my prejudice. And then he starts talking, and he goes, I'd like to begin today's teaching with a quote from my teacher, Thomas Merton. I was like, Thomas Merton? Thomas Merton is my teacher. <laughs> and he goes, Thomas Merton said, sometimes we climb the ladder of success only to find it leaning against the wrong wall. I go, that's my quote. I love that quote. So I met the guy, I don't know him, just by what he looked like and sounded like, threw him on the other side. And then with every word, every story, he built a bridge. And he told this really beautiful and gut-wrenching story. And so he grew up in the country, poor. His parents worked multiple jobs. And he said as a kid, he loved being outside. He wanted to go camping, wanted to learn how to fish and hunt. But his parents were too busy, they couldn't take him. And then one day, his neighbor kind of befriended him, like a big burly dude, 6'4", 260, and took him camping, taught him how to fish, how to gut a fish, how to hunt. And they'd go every weekend. He said it was so amazing. And then he said on one of these weekends, one night, the neighbor came into his tent and started molesting him. And he said from that point on till adulthood, he had rage and anger. He had so much hatred. He hated men to the point where he drank his life into oblivion as an adult. And then he started doing healing work and contemplative work, started seeing a therapist. And they said over 10 years, slowly, slowly, God healed him. 
And then the end of the story, he said, and then God healed me. And then gave me the greatest gift I could ever imagine. God blessed me with a gay son. He said, I wouldn't know how to love him if I didn't know how God already loved me. And here's this guy I threw on the other side by the end of the story. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> Who's on the other side? Picture that person. Anthony DeMello says this. I leave you free to be yourself, to think your thoughts, indulge your tastes, follow your inclinations, behave in ways that you decide are to your liking. And you will notice something else. The person automatically ceases to be as special and important to you. He or she becomes important the way a sunset or a symphony is lovely in itself. The way that a tree is a special in itself. Not for the fruit or the shade it can offer you. Your beloved will then not belong to you but to everyone or to no one. Like the sunrise and the tree. Test it by saying those words again. I leave you free to be yourself. And in saying those words, you have set yourself free. You are now ready to love. And I wonder if contemplation over time helps us depopulate the other side. Maybe over time we realize, oh, there aren't even sides within us as well. And it's like we have this symbol of Christ on the cross, like him holding both sides and saying, stop scapegoating. For every human civilization, you keep scapegoat. Make me the scapegoat to end all scapegoating. And maybe over time, we'll realize, oh, there actually aren't sides. We kind of made that up. What would that look like? Verse 19. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What do we think that means? A scribe then approached and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Foxes and birds have homes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What do we think that means? You want to know what I used to think that meant for a long time? So you think this. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So Jesus had equality with God, emptied himself, made himself nothing, right? And sacrificed his life to the point of death, death on a cross. Christ lived a life of sacrifice. He was even homeless. So therefore, we should live lives of sacrifice. For years, that's how I read this text. But then my theology has changed. Because I believe now that Christ's sacrifice came to end all sacrifices that we're not called to live a life of sacrifice. We're called to live a life of love. 
So if that's the case, what might this text mean? What do we think? And I wonder if Jesus is saying this. Perhaps he's inviting us to find home within ourselves so that we can be at home anywhere and everywhere. Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. So let's ask this question. Where are you most at home? Maybe a specific corner of your house. Maybe it's a trail you like to hike. Maybe it's the ocean, the desert. With whom are you most at home? Like, who are the people you're like, we can be anywhere, but if I'm with this person, I'm at home. Who are those people? Now, where are you least at home? Where are those spaces you walk into, you're like, I can't really be myself. This doesn't feel safe. I don't feel at home. Who are those people that you feel least at home with? So last time I was with you guys, I talked about how I've lived in Austin for 20 years. It's the first city I've ever felt at home in. And so I was on sabbatical. I told the story last time. When we drove into the city onto our street, my family started cheering and hugging and high-fiving. We were cheering for home. We were cheering for 20 years of like neighbors and friends and acquaintances and bars and coffee shops at my church. It was home. We were cheering for it. It's a wonderful feeling. But about once a year in Austin, I'm reminded I'm not that at home. But once a year. So this is what happened last year. I was sitting in a coffee shop, hanging with a friend. I noticed out of the corner of my eye, like someone staring at me. You know how you can kind of tell? So I kind of like looked over and he was looking at me. So I just quickly looked away. A couple minutes pass, like I I can still feel it. I look over, we make eye contact. I kind of give him a nod, look away. Must be having a fantastic hair day or something. Five minutes pass, dude is still looking at me. I look over, we make eye contact. I don't know why I instinctively waved, which he took as a sign to come over and talk to me. And my waving was like, please don't come talk to me. I don't know who you are. So he walks up to me and he asks me, he opens with the question that every person of color loves to be asked. He goes, where are you from? When I go, well, I've lived here in Austin 20 years. I think I'm from Austin. No, 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 no. Where are you from? I go, well, I moved here from Detroit. He's like, well, no, where are you from? I was like, well, I was in Chicago before that. No, where are you from? I was like, all right, you got me. I'm from Canada, from Toronto. <laughs> I was like, you want to keep going? I've lived in a lot of cities. We keep playing this game, right? Then he launches into this long, detailed story of how he went to Japan and his Japanese friend. It was like really long and elaborate. And I just sat there politely and listened because I'm Canadian. (laughs) Then at the end of the story, I was like, cool, good story, man. 
I'm not Japanese. I've never been to Japan. I'd like to go. And then he just walks off confused. So I wish I could say I went from that moment into deep contemplation. But I had like a little toddler tantrum, like, how long do I have to live in this city for it to be home? Then ah! after that passed, I gave myself a little moment. And I was like, let me practice some contemplation. Let me welcome this experience that just happened. Let me notice, what happened? What did he do? Hmm. I'm curious, what, what, why did all these emotions surface in me? Let me notice again. And then I thought, let me ask some questions of meaning. What does this mean? And so I started asking. What does it mean for me to be at home in my body with this face in America? What does it look like for a Chinese Canadian to live in Austin? When did I start to assimilate? Like, why am I kind of good at assimilating? What's the appropriate amount of space for a Chinese-Canadian man to take up in this world? Why do I compulsively apologize so much? Am I apologizing for my existence? And then I ask this. How can I live in this paradox that I'm not that important and I am the glory of God? Perhaps contemplation invites us to find home within ourselves so that we can be at home anywhere and everywhere. Verse 21. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father, the most important symbol of power and love in that culture. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What do we think? Maybe we can ask this question. Whose love can you not live without? Whose love is necessary for your existence? I think Anthony DeMello in this next quote is saying what Jesus is saying, but in different words. He says this, for when you cling, what you offer the other is not love, but a chain by which both you and your beloved are bound. Love can only exist in freedom. The true lover seeks the good of his beloved, which requires especially the liberation of the beloved from the lover. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? And maybe what Anthony DeMello and Jesus are saying this, our inability to live without a person suffocates our capacity to truly love that person. 
Okay. So I recognize I'm saying some really challenging things, right? Because I've got the mic, I'm just saying words, right? I think my head like kind of gets it a little bit, but I think this will take me a lifetime to embody. Does that make sense? I met a friend recently who had just lost his 17-year-old son, which I can't, there's no, I don't even begin. And it reminded me of this letter that was written to two parents who had just lost their four-year-old daughter. The little girl's name was Rachel. And Ramdas wrote this letter uh, to the parents. And this is what he said. Dear Stephen and Anita, Rachel finished her work on earth and left the stage in a manner that leaves those of us left behind with the cry of agony in our hearts as the fragile threat of our faith is dealt with so violently. Is anyone strong enough to stay conscious through such a teaching as you're receiving? Probably very few. And even they would only have a whisper of equanimity and peace amidst the screaming trumpets of their rage, grief, horror, and desolation. I can't comfort your pain with any words, nor should I. For your pain is Rachel's legacy to you. Not that she or I would inflict such pain by choice, but there it is. And it must burn its purifying way to completion. For something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. And it is only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. Now is the time to let your grief find expression, no false strength. Now is the time to sit quietly and speak to Rachel and thank her for being with you these few years and encourage her to go on with whatever her work is, knowing you will grow in compassion and wisdom from this experience. In my heart, I know that you and she will meet again and recognize the many ways in which you have known each other. And when you meet, you will know in a flash what now it is not given to you to know, why this had to be the way it was. Our rational minds can never understand what had happened, but our hearts, if we can keep them open to God, will find their own intuitive way. Rachel came through you to do her work on earth, which includes the manner of her death. And now her soul is free, and the love you can share with her is invulnerable to the winds of changing time and space. And in that deep love, include me. William Blake says like this, we were put here on earth for a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. And so this morning I thought we'd close with a song that's kind of sat with me all year. It's a song called Love More. It's written by Sharon Bennett. And in this version, she sings it with Justin Vernon. And she talks about her learning how to love. In the first part of the song, she talks about a destructive relationship she was in when she was young, 
And the guy was like super controlling, manipulative, would hide her guitar, told her she wasn't good enough to be a musician. And she says, as negative as that was, her leaving that relationship eventually taught her how to love. And then the second half of the song, she's talking to herself where she learns how to love. So check it out.
And so, Ecclesia, we are put here on earth for a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.